This episode of Startup Project is brought to you by Bear.tax. Bear.tax compiles all your crypto transactions and makes it easy for you to file your taxes. Check out Bear.tax. That is B-A-R.T-A-X. Bear.tax. Hey, Ani, thanks for being on the show. Um, yeah, it's great to be here. So I think the first thing I want to talk about in our conversation is, uh, you know, how Games Tax became what it became today. And, you know, in our last conversation, you're talking about the pivots you taken to make it what uh, it looks like today so can you talk a little bit of what game snacks is and how did you end up uh, to make game snack what it is today to begin so i uh spend most of my time as the co-founder and general manager of game snacks we are building a gaming platform for users in emerging markets so mainly countries like india indonesia nigeria brazil mexico where a lot of people are coming online to the internet for the first time, uh, often on uh, lower cost Android phones on 2G, 3G or 4G networks, and they might never have, uh, have played games before. Um, the business is being funded out of Google's internal incubator called Area 120. Um, when we started working on the business, when we first started getting funding for it back in 2018, uh, we did not set out to build this. <laughs> We actually set out to solve a very different problem. Uh, myself and my co-founder, we are from uh, San Francisco. We live and work in San Francisco in California. Um, and uh, you know, I've had a fair amount of experience working on consumer products before. And the initial idea that, that we were working on was a daily game show uh, in the US. Uh, so it was a show that anyone could tune into on their phone uh, but actually be a participant uh, and uh, compete with everyone else who was online uh, tuning into that show and play games and compete for, for cash prizes. Um, so it's been kind of a wild ride over the past three years going from there where we were targeting you know, Gen Z and millennial Americans to eventually users in, in India and Indonesia uh, with a very different product. When you say you pitched... Uh... Did you pitch it internally in Google or were you trying to create a different company outside Google? Yeah, so a bit about my background kind of before that. I joined Google back in 2014 and spent a bit of time working on our emerging markets team and then spent a couple of years working on the Chrome team. Uh, but kind of discovered that, uh, you know, I'm much more of a smaller team, um, early stage of the product style person. Uh, the way I got into tech was by starting starting a maternal health business back when I was in college and I'd always kind of wanted to, to start something new again and start a new business. Um, and I was considering sort of raising capital um, from, from you know, investors and doing it as a startup. But around that time when I was thinking about doing this, uh, in sort of late 2017, early 2018, Google was investing further in this internal incubator, um, Area 120, which is sort of structured as a early stage accelerator for uh, folks to, to start new businesses kind of with the backing of Google. Uh, and it's, it was open both to Google employees, but also folks outside the company, you know, founders who are just looking for an alternate place to, to start something new. And the way the, uh, the incubator is set up is teams are given full autonomy um, to, to build you know, a new business, just, just like a startup. Um, so you have to build a new product from scratch where you have no pre-existing customers and you know, can't use, uh, you know, Google's tooling and, and infrastructure. And so you're, you're on your own, but you uh, are on Google's payroll and can uh, leverage Google's resources when it's helpful for you. 
whether it's hiring folks to grow your team, taking advantage of distribution opportunities, uh, especially when it comes to, to reaching customers or partnering with sort of popular apps to get your product out to market, uh, and also leveraging technology uh, that, that Google might have that, that could be useful for a new business. And so it's meant to kind of combine the best of, of both worlds, of both starting something new from scratch while also having kind of the backing of, of a larger company. So you mentioned you were trying to build a game show, right? Uh, and then you had to pivot to something, what it looks like today, which is not really a game show and you're serving customers in you know, India and Indonesia and you know other places. So at what sort of point did you guys decide to you know pivot to this idea? Yeah, so I mean, the, the genesis for the game show idea was, was us being inspired by this app called HQ Trivia, which was really popular in the second half of 2017 and early 2018 in the US and, and the UK in particular. And it was essentially a trivia show that anyone could tune into and play and compete for cash prizes. And I mean, it really seemed like the next big thing in consumer at the time. Uh, I think it ended up raising to a multi-hundred million dollar valuation. They had 2 million concurrent live viewers every every night, which is way bigger than any sort of live streaming platform had at the time. And, you know, it seemed, seemed clearly like the next big thing. Uh, and so uh, we built a variant of it. Uh, that's what we got funded for, where it was a daily game show with the games changing every day. And so this was sort of the summer of 2018. Um, our first pivot, we ended up doing it uh, in the later half uh, of 2018, sort of around the winter time, when we discovered that we were not the right team to be building that game show. Um, I actually still have conviction in that idea. So if anyone is interested in building it, please let me know. Uh, but what we kind of discovered was it was more of a media play than uh, a product and engineering and a technology differentiated uh, business. Um, a big part of what made HQ Trivia successful was it was a well-produced show and the talent who they had hosting the show was very compelling. It was a funny comedian influencer. Um, and so our idea, we realized, was, was more of a media business than it was a technology business. And, you know, my background and my co-founder's background was in engineering and, and product development. And we wanted to sort of build something that was differentiated by that. But uh, what we realized was we had built a very interesting format. Um, we were actually hosting all the shows in the early days. And uh, in the process of doing that, we were learning a bunch around what formats made the most sense, you know, how many games should be hosted in each show. How often do you vary uh, the games and so on and so forth? And so we were sort of iterating and converging on a format that we thought was very compelling to users uh, and realized that what we could do is actually turn that format into a platform uh, by allowing people who already had audiences through live video, so YouTube creators and Twitch streamers and you know influencers who are, who are comfortable with live streaming already, we could bring this format to them and let them host game shows for their audience. That was sort of our first evolution in our thinking, was rather than us hosting the game show every day, what would it look like if you know, YouTubers and Twitch streamers hosted shows for their audience? And so the way I often describe it to people is kind of the, the North Star that we always had in our head is, what would it look like if you know, someone like Ellen DeGeneres or Jimmy Fallon or um, some sort of a you know, casual lifestyle influencer like that were to play Flappy Bird or Candy Crush or uh, Snake, you know, with their entire audience live over YouTube. That was the idea. You know, would that be interesting? Um, is there a business to be built there? Is there a new way that they could start interacting with their fans and actually start playing with them and interacting with them, rather than their fans just passively sort of watching them and consuming their content? 
Um, and so we spent most of 2019 trying to build that business. Um, it, it was called livegame.show and that domain is actually still live. You can go check it out. Uh, and the basic product was um, essentially we took a bunch of games and uh, allowed uh, an arbitrarily large number of users to be playing those games live in real time together, competing you know, to see who could get the highest score in a minute or two with a host uh, like Ellen DeGeneres or you know, a Twitch streamer moderating the whole thing. Um, and at our peak, we ended up um, you know, getting, getting a reasonable amount of traction. We had tens of creators using the platform. So not massive scale, but you know, enough for us to learn and for us to realize that the format was interesting. Um, had tens of thousands of users kind of using it um, during, during the beta, uh, but concluded um, around the second half of 2019 that there wasn't really a viable business model there. Um, like we got, we, I think we were on to building an interesting product and clearly we we're building something that resonated with creators and resonated with fans. It was an, it was an experience that they couldn't have anywhere else online, you know, being able to play with hundreds of other people and their favorite influencers. But we couldn't figure out a, a way to make the, the math work from a business perspective. We were, we were paying creators to use the product. And when we would stop paying creators, uh, creators would no longer use it, <laughs> you know? Uh, and we couldn't really figure out alternate business models. We couldn't really figure out a way for fans to want to pay to play with their favorite creators. We couldn't really figure out advertising. We tested a bunch of these different things. And sort of an interesting shift was happening in the creator economy around that time too, where, uh, you know, in 2019, and, even more so now in, in 2021, uh, creators went from wanting to just accumulate followers and you know accumulate influence to actually wanting to monetize. People started realizing that uh, you know there's an opportunity to to build a viable career uh, by by being an influencer online. And so the days of being able to pitch influencers that they could get followers and get engagement and the monetization would come later just were gone. Um, influencers were demanding sort of monetization sooner in the life cycle of the product, and and we couldn't deliver it. And so, uh, you know, we had, uh, this was around August, 2019. We had about three months of funding left in area 120 and we're kind of scratching our heads, uh, to be honest. We didn't really know where to take it. Um, you know, we sunk a year and a half into this project, tried two different products, um, learned some interesting things, but uh, didn't, didn't really have a business that was working. And so, uh, you know, it was, it was a challenging time and we were considering, considering shutting the project down but uh, on a whim, kind of realized one day uh, when we were digging through our analytics uh, that we had a small but uh, engaged and retained user base from India mm -hmm. coming to our website to play our games. They're coming to livegame.show, you know, the site that had been built for YouTube creators, you know, to play these games. They were coming uh, and just discovering some of our games and, and playing them. Uh, nothing to do with YouTube creators, nothing to do with the game shows, just a website with, with, with web games. And we ignored it for a while because it felt like a distraction. Uh, it wasn't the core audience that we were trying to serve. It wasn't, uh, you, know, you know, it didn't seem like it was in line with our product thesis. But, uh, you know, around September 2019, when we were open to sort of pivoting in a bunch of different directions, we decided to take a closer look. Because it was the first time, you know, a year and a half that we had saw, we had seen real organic retention um, out of anything we had built. We saw people who uh, sought out our product when we weren't even trying to market them um, uh, to reach them, um, who not only used our product, but were coming back without us having to, to beg them uh, to use it. Um, and so when we started taking a closer look and started talking to some of those users who were, who were using the product, 
we realized that many of them, uh, you know, had never really used the internet before. They were relatively new internet users in, uh, you know, places like larger cities like Delhi, but also, you know, smaller cities like, uh, you know, Ahmedabad or, uh, or, or Pondicherry or places where we were not really expecting people to be discovering our website. And, and it was true also in Indonesia, by the way. And, and we realized that many of these users uh, had never really played games before on their phone, but also were not going to the App Store and the Play Store to install new games because a lot of those games are quite large. The games that you might discover on the App Store and the Play Store are hundreds of megabytes, whereas the games on our site are much smaller. They might be two or three or four megabytes. And so they load a lot more quickly on a lot of these users' devices and consume a lot less data. And so they're a lot cheaper cheaper to use. So almost so, by accident. When you are taking the pivot, I mean, you mentioned that, you know, there was not a viable business model in live game dot show, right? Were you seeing a clear business model in pivoting to this direction, you know, lightweight users, first time internet users, you know, in India and Indonesia? Was, was there a viable business model that you could see while you're pivoting? Or because you were also mentioning that, you know, you're losing your funding, there's only two month runway. So how does that work? How did you guys think about, you know, whether or not there's a viable business model there? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Ultimately, yes, it ended up leading to a viable business model. But at the time, sort of what we wanted to initially focus on is where is there true demand? Because our, our belief um, from the very beginning of when we started, started the business was if there's true legitimate demand, demand that you are not BSing to yourself, demand that you're not pitching to investors, but true demand, you build something, you know, in the YC ethos of building something that people want, mm -hmm. you can eventually turn it into a business. And I think the challenge before, both with the daily game show and with the game show platform, livegame.show, is we didn't have true demand. We deluded ourselves into thinking we had true demand by looking at vanity metrics, metrics mm -hmm. like total number of creators, total number of users, but we weren't looking at the things that really matter, like retention uh, and specifically organic retention. Um, but we were seeing that with this Indian audience and we were seeing it with that Indonesian audience. And so that's what really started turning, turning the wheels in our head was, okay, there's real demand here. And, if, uh, and this is the first time we've seen real demand. And so this is a thread that's worth pulling on. And so what ended up happening was that observation uh, us realizing that there are a bunch of these users, you know, in India and Indonesia coming to our site to play our games, led to us sort of diving deeper into what was happening with web gaming in Asia. Uh, and what we learned was, you know, web gaming has been going through a big renaissance in the region. Uh, a lot of it was kicked off by WeChat in 2017 in China uh, by their launch of a web gaming platform inside of the WeChat app. And so now, uh, I mean, you can play hundreds of these games inside of WeChat where you can challenge your friends to play these lightweight games and compete to see who can get the highest score and things like that. Um, and one out of every two WeChat users, so that's 500 million people, play these games every month. It's massive. It's a massive gaming business. Mm -hmm. uh, and so WeChat kind of kicked off this, this second wave of web gaming all around. The first wave of web gaming was happening, you know, in the 2000s when people could play flash games on their desktop computers. Sites so like Miniclip and Addicting Games and Congregate, maybe some people will, will remember those. And those were primarily popular on desktop, primarily popular uh, you know, in the Western world. But this new wave of mobile web gaming is, re is really uh, taken off in a big way in Asia. And, and I, I give a lot of credit to WeChat. 
And so WeChat kicked it off in 2017 and a bunch of messaging apps uh, in Asia and other countries started following over the last uh, few years, apps like Line and Kikau and uh, Facebook has added gaming inside of the Facebook Messenger app and Snapchat has recently started getting into gaming over the last couple of years. So that's when we realized that the market size for this is actually quite large. Um, you know, we were seeing the demand for it on our product. We realized there are many users who uh, could potentially discover these games because they're very lightweight games. Um, they're games that are meant to be accessible to both people who you might think of as conventional gamers, you know, who have Xbox or, or PlayStation consoles or gaming a lot on PC, but also mobile gamers, you know, people who don't spend a lot of time playing games. Um, and so the, the addressable market for this is really large. And so when we realized that, okay, we had a product that was getting real demand and we were in a potentially big market, this is something worth exploring. And so that was, that was our most, re most recent pivot, which at this point is, is, uh, is over a year and a half ago. Uh, so I'm glad we haven't pivoted since, uh, but we're, we're uh, you know, on, on our way to building, building what we think could be a, could be a quite a large business. Um, and so with GameSnacks, kind of what we're doing now is we work with, game developers all around the world um, who make these web games. We help them optimize those games for these uh, older devices, these flickier networks. We host them on GameSnacks. We help them get distribution by integrating these games into products that users already use so that they don't have to go and install something new. Uh, and then we're also gonna help them monetize through advertising. And so to answer your, your question in a long way about why is this now a viable business, um, we're, we're work, we are working on sort of new ad formats um, to uh, to help developers monetize these games um, and also respect users' attention. These are ad formats that are natively integrated into the games themselves, so they don't feel as intrusive to users. So, so we've also talked about distribution strategy for game snacks because I mean the way web gaming or game snacks is designed is it it makes sense for them. You know, you could do this distribution deals where you could embed games like games in different platforms, right? Can you talk a little bit more about what you're doing in that direction, and how is it fitting in the business model or helping even developers generate more revenue or you know, in future maybe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good question, and I mean, this has been one of my biggest learnings uh, as a founder is just how important distribution is. You know, coming from a product background, I think I, I was always. Uh, uh, bias to think about product first, and I, that's that's still where my interest is. I think I'll, I'll, my heart will always be there. But I think when you're thinking about the business, like distribution matters just as much, if not more, than product. And that's something that I've learned uh, <laughs> multiple times over the last few years. Uh, and so um, we started, you know, by rebranding LiveGame.show as GameSnacks.com. So that's kind of that, that that's our main showcase for our games, and you can check it out. Um, and uh, that's where we got a lot of our early users, but we soon realized that it was going to be very difficult to acquire traffic to a mobile website. Um, because when you think about it, people don't go and like type in new URLs on their phone. Mm -hmm. uh, and if they do, they don't come back to it the next day. Like that's not how user journeys work on phones. People are used to spending time in apps, right? Um, yeah. Whether it's messaging apps or payment apps or, or social apps, whatever it might be. I mean, people spend most of their time on five to 10 apps every day. They don't discover new websites on their phone. And so we realized that if we really wanted to crack the next level of distribution and reach you know, millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of users, we would need to meet users where they are. Um, and so we're like, okay, uh, it's gonna be hard to get people to come to a mobile website. So our other option was potentially to build a new app, um, you know, the GameSnacks app, let's say, and try to get people to download that app, but that's also a very difficult problem. Um, you know, in 2020 and 2021, it's really hard to get people to 
find out about new apps and install them. There's a ton of people trying to build new apps. These app stores are very crowded, very competitive. The cost of new user acquisition is very high. We said, okay, that might not be a very viable strategy either, but what if instead we could meet users where they already are and figure out a way to get these games embedded and integrated inside of the apps that they already use day in, day out. Um, and especially in Asia, you know, people are used to using these super apps, whether they're payment apps, ride hailing apps, or messaging apps. They're used to getting multiple things done within the app, whether it's entertaining themselves, watching videos, paying their friends, whatever. Um, and one of the benefits of building all of our infrastructure on the web is that it's embeddable. Um, you can embed these games inside of apps that people already use, just as web views inside of these apps. And so that's been the, the crux of our distribution strategy over the last year is um, integrating these games inside of popular apps that users already use, many of which are Google apps. So we're integrated inside of apps like Google Chrome, um, Google Pay in India, which is you know massive payment app in India, uh, where users also entertain themselves, Google Assistant, um, the Google Discover feed. We have uh, partners that we work with as well, like Gojek in Indonesia, which is a ride-hailing app. Um, and then the best part is from a game developer perspective, they don't need to worry about any of this. They don't need to worry about striking these distribution deals with these partners. They just need to work with us, with Game Snacks, and we will get them traffic. They don't need to worry about it at all. We will, we will do the work of, of, uh, of laying down that infrastructure. Do you see sort of like a freemium model as well coming into Game Snacks, or is it purely going to be distribution and monetization through ads and other formats? Good question. I mean, we're, we're willing to experiment with different types of business models. Uh, freemium, and maybe what you mean by freemium is sort of like a subscription model. Is that kind of what you mean? Yeah, it's a sort of like a premium where, you know, you can actually buy and, you know, experience Game Snacks, and, you know, that would oh, be exactly. a new, new stream of revenue for Game Snacks. Yeah. Sure, like in-game purchases, yeah, yeah, which is a topic for a mobile game monetization model. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're open to experimenting with all forms of monetization, whether it's in-game purchases or subscriptions or tournaments, for example, have been very popular in, in Asia as well. Um, so we're open to it, but for the time being, we are we're focused on advertising. Um, it's definitely Google's bread and butter. <laughs> so one interesting thing that strikes me is, you know, you talked about funding running out. So how does it work when you work with Area 120? Like, are you guys, and you you refer to yourself as founder, right? So do you actually own uh, a certain amount of the company or how does it work when you're creating a company inside Google, you know, inside Area 120? Yeah, it's a good question. And the way I talk about it is I, I wouldn't say it's accurate to say that we're creating a new company. We're mm -hmm. creating a new business um, mm -hmm. within Google. So uh, at the end of the day, we're Google employees. Google, Google owns the IP. Um, mm -hmm. There's no, you know, cap table in the conventional sense, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, you know, teams are incentivized to care about the value of what they're building, uh, and I think that's kind of one of the most interesting things that uh, that Area 120 has figured out is how to get small teams to care ultimately about uh, the long-term sort of business value of of the new products that they're building from scratch, because that's a that's a difficult challenge, you know, that large companies face is to create that incentive structure, mm -hmm. um, but uh, but. It's it's owned by Google. Um, a little bit a little bit in terms of kind of the operations of Area 120. Um, so the way it works is that uh, teams, uh, small teams, the founding teams initially pitch new ideas in an application process. It's pretty you know similar to like a YC or a TechStars or uh, an accelerator style application where you have a short written application and then maybe a 30 minute pitch. Um, and if you get funded, you get six months of initial funding. 
uh, a little bit of uh, capital uh, and a small amount of headcount, maybe to hire one or two or three people to make progress on, uh, on, on building the new business and, and try to get traction. Uh, and then after that point, there's sort of a, a decision that's made about whether you are building something that, you know, could be a Google scale business in the future, you know, something that could lead to tens or hundreds of millions of new users uh, for Google or, or be a, you know, a massive scaled revenue stream, or does it not make sense, um, you know? Um, and so many projects at that point are discontinued and shut down. Um, this is actually my secondary 120 project. Before this, I worked on something in the personal finance space which ended up getting discontinued after six months. Um, but if you're able to make the case that, uh, you know, you are onto something, then you get additional additional time uh, and additional funding uh, and additional headcount to, to continue building it. Uh, and so teams are sort of reevaluated after that on a six to 12 month cadence. Uh, and that's another thing I think Area 120 does a great job of is uh, creating that urgency. You know, you never have more than 12 months of, of runway, I guess, so mm -hmm. to speak. Yeah. Which is analogous to a startup, you know, you, you are usually fundraising on a 12 to 18 month time horizon. And so you need to make sure that you're continually demonstrating product uh, progress because there's always the prospect that, that your project might get discontinued. And then the long term, long term hope is that you end up building something that's large enough that ends up uh, turning into Google's next major new product. So slightly shifting gears and I want to talk about, you know, the economic side of uh, gaming and the value chain and uh, involved in game production itself. Uh, one of the observations that I personally made, you know, is it's often referred that gaming economics are very similar to media economics, right? It's all hit-driven hit businesses, right? Uh, one game studio, if it can produce one hit, it will offset all the costs. And, you know, there are different players. I see now, I'm talking to you, GameStacks looks more like a publisher slash distributor if I compare with a media business, right? How, how do you look in general, like the economics of gaming, and how do you see game snacks, you know, economics in future? Uh, I'm assuming it's you're still pre-revenue, uh, you know, in the quote-unquote startup language. Uh, how do you see the economics of gaming in general? Yeah, it's a great question, uh, and it's it's a complex one. Um, so let me let me try to break it down. So first of all. Uh, I actually think the word gaming uh, is an overloaded term. I mean, just for numbers, um, gaming is roughly a $200 billion a year industry by revenue. Like that's mind bogglingly massive. And, and to give you kind of a comparison point, all of Hollywood generates about somewhere yeah. between 40 to $50 billion a year. Gaming is actually uh, the biggest media business, right? Right. And music, all of recorded music generates about $20 billion a year. So gaming yeah. is not only the biggest media category, it's bigger than all the other categories combined. Yeah. Um, just absolutely massive. And so whenever you have a category that big, uh, you know, you have to you have to go like a layer deeper. So I'd say the simplest layer that you can go deeper with gaming is just uh, what platform are you gaming on? Mm -hmm. um, there's roughly three. There's console, there's PC. And there's mobile and you know there's an emergent category of cloud gaming but we can ignore that for the time being uh and so if you look at those three you know segments console pc and mobile mobile is about half of that 200 billion so mobile is about 100 billion pc and console are about 100 billion and the economics of both of those look very different because the ecosystems are quite different and so if you look at kind of the major entities in gaming and if you look at the value chain uh 
let's start from the very beginning, which is, uh, you know, the creation part of it. And so what goes into that? There are the actual tools that you use to make games. Uh, and so a large part of that is the game engine. So this is where players like Unity fit in. Epic and, and Unity really are, are the, the players that, that are well known. Um, you know, they, they are, they're a player in that value chain. Um, so uh, there's a creation tool. Then there's the actual distributor. Um, and more and more, those are large platforms that aggregate consumers and make it really easy for consumers to discover games. And so on mobile, those are the app stores. You know, that's Apple's App Store and Google Play. Uh, on desktop, that might be, you know, something like Steam. Uh, on console, it might be provided by the console providers. So, you know, Xbox, uh, Xbox Live or, uh, you know, the PlayStation Store, what have you. Um, then there's the actual publishers, which you were talking about. And so what, what they, their main role in the industry is not necessarily to make the games, but to buy and license IP from game developers and figure out how to work with the distributors and figure out how to do the marketing to actually get those games discovered uh, discovered by users. Uh, and then finally, there's, there's the advertisers and the ad networks that actually help a lot of these games get monetized, especially the free-to-play games. Um, there's an emergent uh, entity, I'd say, in the ecosystem as well, which are the influencers. So these are the streamers on Twitch and, and YouTube who are increasingly becoming uh, a key player in the top of funnel sort of discovery of games. That's how a lot of users discover new games, you know, it's by watching a streamer play them rather than looking at sort of banner ads or movie trailers on, uh, online. Um, and I'd say those folks uh, take, take a cut of the revenue as well. Do you see game snacks more like a publisher or a, a distributor? How, how are you seeing game snacks? Oh, that's right. Yeah, uh, game snacks main role is as, as a distributor. So we are trying to uh, work with gaming publishers and gaming studios on the one hand to help them get distribution, mm -hmm. uh, and we are trying to be, uh, you know, the the place where users go to discover the games. And I'd say we're kind of interesting because we often don't own the exact end user relationship. Like we're okay with that. We, mm -hmm. Like I said, we don't expect users to necessarily come to gamesnacks.com. Yeah. Users might be discovering our games uh, on Chrome, you know, or, or Google Pay, mm -hmm. but that's okay um, because, uh, because uh, ultimately it, it makes our job easier. We don't need to worry about doing the user acquisition, which is very difficult to do these days. So we, we are sort of an intermediary between the game developers uh, and game studios and game publishers. So on, on the one hand, and apps and services that are looking to add engaging content into into their um, into their products. So, in terms of working with developers, what does Game Snacks offer? You know, developers in terms of getting their game onto Game Snacks, is it a sort of relationship like you know an app store has uh, towards developers? Yeah, I'd say it's very analogous. And so, I mean, we try to keep it pretty lightweight for developers. Um, our pitch to them is we want you to just focus on making a great game. Like that's it. That's what you love doing. Like that's why you became a game developer and we'll take care of the rest. You know, mm -hmm. we'll take care of uh, things like hosting, which it turns out is actually quite complex in the web gaming ecosystem because there's many different contexts in which a game could be, uh, could be played. So it's gotta be hosted in a flexible way. Mm -hmm. uh, we take care of things like QA, um, making sure that the game works well on a variety of different devices. So our, all of our games work on iOS and Android and desktop. That's the promise of the web. Mm -hmm. um, and we have a QA team that helps with that. 
We take care of distribution. I mentioned that, and we think that's one of our biggest value props to developers. We figure out how to get users for these games. And then uh, we will also help with monetization uh, by making it really easy for these developers to do ad supported monetization. Mm-hmm. So uh, I thought one of the interesting con- uh, topics to ask you is since you know, you're leading game snacks and working with developers and you know sort of living in the ecosystem, what are the f- trends of next generation of gaming that you're seeing? Like, be it you know cloud gaming or you know you know Roblox recently IPO'd where user generated gaming sort of comes into the picture. So what are the trends do you see are emerging out and sort of not just in the fringes but coming into the mainstream as well? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I generally personally have this thesis that like gaming is at the cutting edge and frontier of all internet life, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of behaviors that we see in the mainstream today. Have been happening in gaming for the last five or ten years. The latest example that I always point to, I've been pointing to for the past few months, is like with Clubhouse. You know, everyone's obsessed with Clubhouse and mm-hmm. live audio and all these things, but gamers have been doing this for the last 10-15 years on Discord and um, you know TeamSpeak and Skype and, and so on. So mm-hmm. I find that uh, these questions fascinating. Um, yeah, a couple things. A uh, couple things I'm excited about. So one on the creation side. Uh, and one on the consumption side, and, and you sort of touched on both of them. So on the creation side, um, you know, I mentioned earlier that game development, get, that the gaming industry generates a, a ton of revenue, and it's been growing uh, at an incredible clip over the last 10 years. But the costs of making a game have also gone up a ton too. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, gaming budgets are getting higher and higher. They're starting to look kind of like film and studio budgets. Um, and uh, it's really, I mean, you're seeing all these studios raise hundreds of millions in funding to make new mobile games, uh, which means the production value is going up because consumers are expecting that, but it also means the barrier to creation is very high. But in almost every other media category, you know, when you look at things like video, when you look at things like audio, when you look at things like text, it's actually becoming easier to make the content. It's becoming more democratized. Anyone can become a writer on the internet just by getting a Twitter account. Anyone can become an audio creator on the internet just by you know, clicking a button on Clubhouse and going live. Mm-hmm. Anyone can become a, a video creator on the internet by recording a five-second video on, on TikTok. But it's really hard to make a game right now. You have to not only be a, an engineer, you need to understand how to write code, but you also need to have um, what I call like kind of game design taste uh which is a skill in its own right it's hard to come up with a fun game concept like for example what makes snake you know a fun game what makes uh solitaire a fun game what makes fortnite a fun game it's actually a pretty deep uh difficult question to answer that's as much art and psychology and economics as it is uh uh as it is design as it is engineering uh and i think uh uh, that's why it's been very difficult to build these types of really easy to use creation tools that really democratize game creation. But we've started to see evidence of this, you know, over the last few years. And you mentioned Roblox, which just had a, a ridiculously high, high IPO. And uh, a, lot of, a lot of the games there are made by uh, folks who are very young, you know, mm-hmm. folks who are uh, middle schoolers, sometimes even elementary school people, uh, high schoolers who don't have a lot of uh, software experience, but Roblox has made it really easy for them to get started. Um, Minecraft is another example of this, but they're both very desktop focused, you know, and I think yeah. the best 
and most accessible creation tools these days are, are mobile tools. Uh, most people in the world only have mobile devices in their computer. Uh, and so that's an area that I'm very interested in is what is that, I, I call, I, I talk about this a lot, like what is the TikTok for games gonna look like? Uh, what are the creation tools that are gonna enable that? Um, I think whoever builds that potentially could build a business that's even more valuable than TikTok because the addressable market for gaming is I think larger than short form video and people spend more time with these games than they do with video. Uh, and so that's something that I'm, I'm pretty interested about, pretty interested in uh, on the gaming side. Um, and I don't think we've actually quite started to see it happen yet. I think you're still very early if you're able to explore this on the mobile side. Um, and then on, uh, on the consumption side, so when it comes to actually playing games, um, there's a couple, a couple things that I'm really excited about. So one is the shift away from installs to streaming. Uh, this is something that's also been happening in every other media category. You know, people don't install or people don't download movies anymore. People, people stream them on Netflix. People don't uh, install MP3s anymore. Uh, you know, people stream songs on Spotify, but people still install games. People still go to the App Store and the Play Store to install games. Uh, people still go to Steam, you know, to install games. So Google's obviously been investing in this with Stadia um, and a bunch of other companies have been doing this. Uh, you know, Amazon's been uh, announcing a bunch of work in that space and uh, Microsoft has been as well. In some ways, I mean, we're doing that too with Game Snacks. All of our games are install free. It's all built on the web. We don't have a fancy term for it, but the web enables, uh, you know, the same user experience. You can go and tap on a link and start playing without having to install anything. And so I'm really interested to see what that shift looks like over the next five years. I'm incredibly bullish that it'll happen because one, we've seen that trend happen in every other media vertical. Two, internet speeds are just getting better and better. You know, 5G is right around the horizon. Uh, Starlink is getting rolled out. And, you know, I think soon the world, regardless of where you are, whether it's in a city or whether it's in a rural area, you're going to get really high bandwidth internet. And three, more and more of the planet is getting uh, really great internet connectivity. I mean, Reliance Geo, you know, obviously mm -hmm. is an example, incredibly uh, compelling example of that in India over the last couple of years. Uh, and so I think it's only a matter of time until we, we shift away from the install model in gaming to, to streaming. Yeah, I agree with all those, uh, you know, those interesting trends. And another trend that I'd like to add is, you know, what Niantic is doing, right? Uh, we saw this uh, through AR and we've been waiting for AR for a while. But I think if we can get to a consumer device which will unlock AR, I think that is going to you know, sort of trigger a new category of uh, gaming or game consumption altogether. Uh, oh, totally. like ima imagine if you're driving somewhere and the experience that you're seeing with the new, you know, maybe hyper new Google Glass is completely going to change the way uh, we live and experience even entertainment, right? Um, so I'm super excited about that idea of what Niantic will come up with because I mean, the team in Niantic is also ex uh, Google Maps team. Uh, so I'm super excited to see how that will evolve. Maybe it will take five or 10 years. I think the whole reason why that never evolved is because of the lack of consumer device, uh, which will actually power and maybe 5G and you know, we'll finally get to a computing speed where you know, we can wear a, uh, a Ray-Ban looking like a uh, consumer device, you know, which will streamlessly uh, able to view AR in both VR worlds. I think that will actually trigger a new way of both creation of games and consumption of games as well. Um, yeah, totally. I mean, Snap, don't sleep on Snapchat. They're supposed to be launching a new uh, AR device. Rumors yeah. 
Yeah, probably. I, I mean, it's not, I'm super bullish on their creative side of things. Snapchat has always been creative. And yeah. obviously, Niantic will probably execute better than anyone else I could think of right now because of just, yeah. you know, the team that executed Google Maps and Keyhole and uh, that whole history is sort of, you know, that makes me think that they'll be the first ones to get on market. And they'll sort of probably overlay the entire world, you know, using Google Maps with different experience all over the world, right? You can see Niantic doing that. Uh, in next five to ten years. Yeah, and they they you know started playing off of Pokemon Go, and just I mean on this point because I think it's a good one. Uh, whenever there's going to be a new shift in the to the next computing paradigm, which is going to happen, you know, with mm-hmm. AR or VR, uh, we don't know when, but yeah, it's going to happen. Um, likely the first killer use cases for it, the first killer apps will be games. Um, yeah, it's been true time and time and again with every major computing shift. It was true uh, in the early days of the computer, you know, mm-hmm. the first games that people often played when they, the first things people did when they got a PC was like play, you know, Solitaire or Minesweeper that came bundled with their with their Windows PCs. Yeah. It was true in the early days of the internet, you know, all these flash gaming sites, uh, people spent so much time on yahoo.com playing those games. Um, it was true with mobile, you know, the first major apps that people used then and still now were games. Mm-hmm. And so it will probably be with uh, with AR and VR as well. It already is true with VR today. That's what most of the VR usage is. Yeah, yeah. Sort of shifting gears, uh, I love to talk about, uh, you know, we met through OnDeck. I've been through an OnDeck fellowship myself through podcasting and uh, you did your own OnDeck fellowship. I'd love to talk to you about, you know, how was your OnDeck experience and what really helped you and what, what did you take away from your own OnDeck experience? Yeah, so... Um, so I did the On Deck Angel Fellowship uh, back in August, August of 2020. Um, and I did it because I was still relatively new to angel investing. Um, I'd done it only for a few months before that. And I was seeking a community of other people who were still uh, early in their, their investing careers and, and wanted, a, wanted a forum to, to you know, get to know them and, and share tips and, and so on. Um, I'd also been seeing references to OnDeck kind of more and more on Twitter and blog posts and so on. And I was getting very curious because people were, were hyping it up quite a bit. And I found their, their mission statement to be very compelling. Their, their mission is to build what they call Stanford in the cloud. Um, you know, Stanford as if it was started from scratch in, in 2020, 2021, which is, very, which is a very interesting idea. Um, I don't know what my expectations were, were going into it. I think all I was looking for I mean, this was the height of the pandemic too, you know, we're still in it, but it was deep in the pandemic. And it was it really, I think I was just looking for an interesting online community. Uh, and I think in, in many ways, my, my expectations have been surpassed. Um, I think what OnDeck has really figured out, and I'm curious what your experience has been like with a podcasting fellowship, but at least with the Angel Fellowship, is they figured out how to build a very engaged online community um, on Slack and Zoom. You know, they don't, they don't necessarily invent new tools to do this. Like, it's just using tools that I'm sure a lot of us spend all day on anyway, Slack and Zoom. But they've done a very good job of creating community norms around it, creating community leaders around it, who do the right amount of prompting, do the right amount of uh, sort of pushing when it feels like the community is at a lull. And they've also done a really good job of curating people who are open and willing to participate in these communities. Uh, and I think that's really their secret sauce is they figured out how to do community building online uh, in a professional context. And, you know, as the world mo- moves more and more towards 
uh, remote work and us spending time online, uh, that's, that's just going to be so important. Um, so I've, I've had a great time both meeting other angel investors through it and, and learning and up-leveling my skills and, you know, meeting fascinating people like yourself, but also learning what online community building can look like in, in 2021. Yeah, I think I definitely agree with, they did a masterclass of online community building and sort of pandemic also helped them trigger that. But I think if you look at any college education, uh, let's say you go to, I mean, take Stanford or, or if you do an MBA, right? Uh, what really, you can replace everything that you can learn through an MBA by, you know, reading 40 books and doing a bunch of things. You can start your own company and, uh, you know, learn, experience everything about business by starting your own company. But one thing that will, you can't replace that you have to go to school for is the community that you'll get around it and the collective experience that you go through with them. I think that sort of is something irreplaceable, right? You can replace an MBA and, you know, there's all this talk about uh, whether or not, you know, college is worth it and MBA is worth it or not. But the only thing that is not replaceable through a Stanford or a Harvard is the community that you get around it, right? That's the most irreplaceable thing that you get uh, with any of these college experiences. And I think that's where OnDeck really shines is they somehow figured out to curate people who are, you know, not bullshitting around and bringing them together and creating this experience that will really help each other. And I think just curation is so powerful. I think it just tells us that in this world where so much information, you just, by curating right set of people and bringing right set of people, you can create value. I think OnDeck is sort of an example for that. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. Um, and I, I like the way you kind of broke down, like, what is what is the value of, like, you know, a Harvard or Stanford MBA, let's say. Um, I sort of think about it as kind of three buckets. One is the, the knowledge, the raw knowledge, and totally agree with you that you can you can ingest that, you know, these days just by reading. Um, the second is the community, which you're talking about. The third is the credential. You know, mm -hmm. it's, if you say you went to Harvard, literally anywhere in the world, people know what that means. And yeah. you have a certain amount of respect. And I think that's actually the one that's going to take the longest for, for someone like OnDeck to build because, yeah. you know, Harvard and Stanford have had decades of, uh, of brand equity that they've accrued. And that stuff does not evaporate overnight. Um, you know, I'm bullish that there will be an internet native uh, brand that's created in this space. And, um, OnDeck is one of my leading contenders for it, but I think it's just going to take time. To your point about community, um, I, I think you're right that like that's a large part of what makes you know the Harvard or Stanford experience valuable. I've thought a lot about this in the OnDeck context. I think you know OnDeck is certainly one of the best online communities that I've seen, but it still doesn't feel you know as good as going to college. Yeah. And I, I wonder why like like. I think, I think intuitively a lot of us probably get that, but if you like kind of think about why, I mean, part of it is I think uh, you don't spend as much time um, with these people. Like you see them, you know, in bits and spurts in the middle of the work day on Slack versus cohabitating with these folks in the physical world for two years and four years. Uh, but you also don't go through like shared challenges together. Like I think yeah. I think when I look back on like, you know, my college experience, like, a lot of my closest friendships and, and the relationships that matter the most to me are folks with whom I, I went through some some real shit, uh, and you can't really go through that uh, on Slack. Yes, uh, but maybe, maybe you can, you know, in VR. Maybe on deck in <laughs> VR will be different. 
No, I think in a post-pandemic world, I think online could do a combination of physical and, uh, you know, virtual uh, course, right? Or even online or some other platform which will come out where you could add more shared experiences. Let's say if you're an angel investing, you probably force them to, you know, do a dual project where you're investing in company, go find a company in the next month. And you can elongate even the cohort length also for maybe a year and sort of create this hybrid college experience, which should be more valuable than, and, you know, more reasonable amount of, uh, you know, college tuition that you're spending than something like an MBA. So I think there's a, obviously there's a ways, uh, I think it can be still improved. I've definitely thought about the same thing and you're on point about the fact that we don't have a lot more shared experience. So I think it's how much you can, uh, you know, reach out to people and, you know, talk to more and more people and on that, that's how you derive value. But uh, there's not a lot of shared experiences as you would have in, uh, in a college thing. Yeah. And, and the, hybrid, the hybrid model you're talking about is super interesting. Kind of reminds me of what, uh, you know, Balaji Srinivasan uh, mm-hmm. talks a lot about on, on Twitter, you know, this idea of like a cloud city where yeah, you, yeah. you extract the community online, but then eventually it has a physical manifestation. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, could be something like that here. Yeah. I mean, it, it's... That idea is sort of now ever present, right? If you have enough social capital on Twitter, you could start your own rolling fund, or you know, do something else, or yeah. you can start your own yeah. version of on deck, or you can, totally. you know, who knows, create create your own creator coin, and you know, start selling that. Uh, you know, stuff. Put a city on the map like Miami. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think whatever happens in the internet is, you know. Certain has certainly has physical ramifications. Uh, I'd also love to talk about your general thesis of you know angel investing and how you are approaching it because I've seen you know in my own experience when you're doing it as an individual LP versus if you're doing, doing leading around versus you know you're co-syndicating with others, your sort of thesis has you know a little bit of nuance in terms of how you approach it. So uh, I'd love to know how you are approaching your own you know angel investing thesis. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and I think part, part of it depends on you kind of being very honest with yourself about what game are you playing, you know, and I think there's, there's a few different reasons to even angel invest. My main reason to do it is not to make money, uh, at least not in the, uh, you know, immediate, immediate short term, meaning over the next three to five years, like I'm spending my time operating, building game snacks. I love building new things. Um, and that's, that's how I intend on continuing to spend my time. Maybe one day I'll transition to being an investor more full-time, but not, not right now. Um, so my, my main reason to do it is one, to build relationships with awesome founders. Um, two, to kind of share a lot of what I've learned through my founding journey to folks who, who might be able to benefit from it. And three, uh, the way I talk about it is kind of pay for a very expensive substack. <laughs> you know, I mostly operate at the, at the pre-seed kind of seed stage, so very early, um, relatively small checks, uh, I mean, larger than a subsidized subscription, but smaller than what a lot of VC funds are, are cutting. And I, I think one of the amazing uh, opportunities that they give you is, you know, access to amazing thinking from people building the future. And so being able to get to see and learn about uh, industries that I'm interested in, but might not know a lot about uh, from uh, information that might not be public is, is, is really helpful to me and helps, helps me, you know, come up with new ideas for what I'm building uh, and new people to meet. So, so those, those are my goals. Um, uh, and from that kind of in my strategy gets informed. Um, so one of the, one of the biggest things that I've kind of learned about early stage kind of startups and early stage product building 
is when you look at the trifecta of team, market, and product, that's the order in which I think they're important. The team overwhelmingly is what matters in the early days and the pre-seed seed stage days. But then the market, so loosely kind of what problem are they solving or what tech trend are they, are they uh, building on top of? And then only, only the third importance is the product. Um, and it took me a while to realize this, but I think, I think part of the reason why is the initial product is almost overwhelmingly gonna likely change. I mean, we experienced this with GameStack. I was talking about all the pivots that we went through. It took us almost two years before we arrived at this India-focused, emerging markets-focused gaming business. Um, totally not what we set out to do. Even the market changed a bunch of times. Uh, you know, We were trying to serve Gen Z and millennial Americans in 2018, and now we serve uh, people in India and Indonesia and Nigeria. Um, and so you, you know, the product's probably going to change a bunch. The market might change. The team could change too. Uh, you know, um, <laughs> co-founders break up. Um, uh, um, you know, early hires leave. Whatever. But I think that's the big, biggest predictor of startup failure. And so that's something that uh, you know I spend a lot of time thinking about is why do I think that this team is an exceptional team, um, both in their own right, but also to solve the exact problem uh, that they're going after. And I, I've discovered that just personally, it's a very fascinating question for me to answer. I love thinking about human psychology. I love thinking about what motivates people. I love thinking about how people uh, you know, make decisions. And so uh, a large part of my kind of investing strategy is try to get signal on that as quickly uh, as I can. Uh, you know, one of the best ways to do it is to invest in people who you have long-standing relationships with. So some of my investments are in friends who are starting companies who, uh, you know, we've been talking about startups for ages and I love the way that they think and I always learn from them. And, you know, it's almost a no-brainer bet on them. And maybe this particular company won't work, but it doesn't matter. I'll, I'll bet on them with the next one and the one after that because I believe in them. But for other people, you know, I've invested in, in companies where I don't uh, know the founder that well before. I haven't had a very long relationship with them, but I've been very impressed by the way that they think. Uh, and, you know, I'm still trying to figure out exactly how to distill that into core principles. Those are principles that evolve over time. But it tends to be around things like intellectual honesty. Um, you know, I think one of, the, one of the challenges with startups is as a founder, you're constantly selling, you're constantly pitching, right? You're pitching investors, you're pitching um, to part with their capital, you're pitching early employees to part with their, with their, you know, their time and their other job opportunities can work for you. You're pitching customers to, to take a bet on an unproven product. Um, and you, you always need to be doing that, but you also can't delude yourself. You can't delude your team. You have to, you have to be honest about whether or not something is working. And I think one of the biggest psychological challenges is can you hold both in your head at the same time? And so that's something that, uh, that I, I try to sort of test for and probe on and see if I can get signal on. Um, the other is kind of like, uh, over what time horizon are they thinking? Are they optimizing for, for the here and now? Are they optimizing for the next five to seven to 10 years? I mean, it's a grind to, to build, you know, a great business. Um, and, you know, in 2021 right now, it's a, it's a boom time, you know, money is easy. Uh, uh, it's probably one of the best times to start a company in the last 10 years, but who knows if it'll continue to be that way next year or two years from now? And, um, you know, does the founder have, have the psychology and the, and the willpower and the desire to want to continue after that? Um, these are tough questions to answer, especially when you don't know someone that well. Uh, but I think they're, they're, I'm very interested in how can you answer, how can you ask the right questions or look at the right signals to, to figure that out? So what is next for you? Uh, will you continue to write seed, pre-seed checks in angel investing or do you want to graduate into doing something else? 
on the investing side? Yeah, on the investing side. On the investing side, yeah. So I mean, right now I spend um, most of my investing time writing kind of these pre-seed seed uh, checks that you just mentioned. Um, I've started developing kind of a network of other investors who, who I co-invest with as well. People who either share, um, you know, similar approaches to, to being very founder focused in their investing strategy or people who think about sectors that I'm interested in as well. Like I spend a lot of my time looking at gaming and media and consumer social and emerging markets investments because it's where I spend my time. Um, uh, but it's kind of a loose coalition of investors right now. I think over time, maybe it could evolve into things like a, an angelist syndicate or who knows, maybe one day, a few years from now, a rolling fund or even a fund one day, I don't know. Uh, but I want to first prove to myself that I can make good picks and that I'm a, I'm a good judge of, of startups before I ask other people to, to part with their money. Absolutely. So uh, I mean, we're reaching almost the end of our conversation. So I'd, I ask all my guests, you know, um, where do they get most of their information slash knowledge from? So what are the sources that, you know, you usually depend on one or two picks that you would suggest, uh, you know, to the listeners? Oh, I love that question. Uh, yeah, I think it's so important to understand people's uh, people's media diets. Um, so I, I forgot where I saw this, probably on Twitter, but um, I sort of have like a barbell strategy for uh, <laughs> for my media consumption. Um, there's a heavy part of it that is focused on the like here and now. Uh, and the way I get that is through Twitter. You know, I spend way too much time uh, on Twitter um, and spend a lot of time trying to find new lists and new people to follow. I aggressively follow people. I also aggressively unfollow people. And my bar for unfollowing is, uh, is fairly low. So if I see like two tweets from someone that, uh, that are not interesting, I, I unfollow. Um, so that's, that's a big part of my media diet. But the other big part is actually reading, uh, reading books uh, and specifically books that are kind of old um, so meaning like 30 or 40 or 50 or even older than that, um, 50 years old, uh, but are still kind of like in the general discourse. Because I'm a big believer that if something has withstood, you know, that amount of time is, I guess, past the, the Lindy threshold. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and uh, then there's something really, really worthwhile there. It's something that captures something pretty fundamental about, um, you know, human society or human psychology or, or something like that. So, so it's really those two. It's, it's Twitter. Uh, and it's it's books and, and not much in between. Any interesting books that you would suggest? Yeah, a book that I, I recently read uh, that I've been recommending left and right um, is called Lessons of History. Um, it was written in the 1920s by Will and Ariel Durant. They're both history professors at Harvard, also husband yeah. and wife. Uh, and it spent, uh, are you familiar with it? Yeah, I actually read it. Uh, it's, it's two history professors from Harvard, husband and wife. They spent their entire careers as historians at Harvard, um, published like 10 volumes, like each hundreds of pages long, and they condensed everything that they'd learned, their entire life's work into this book, Lessons of History, that's uh, 200 pages. Uh, And what's fascinating about it is it's like a 15 chapter book, and every chapter tries to analyze human history through a different academic discipline. So for example, there's a chapter on like war and history, like what would it look like if you just analyzed all of human civilizations and human history through the lens of war. There's another chapter called Plagues in History, which is quite you know timely and ironic right now. What if you what if you analyze all of human human events through uh, through just looking at you know natural disasters and plagues? There's economics in history, there's psychology in history. 
So uh, the way I, the, the reason I love it is it almost feels like it's the ultimate liberal arts education uh, in, in the true sense of that term delivered in book form. Uh, and, and it's a good reminder that, um, you know, even though there's so much change happening in the world right now, um, accelerated by technology, um, what, what hasn't changed is, uh, is human nature. And what hasn't changed ultimately is I think um, human social dynamics and many of the problems that we face now are problems that have been faced in analogous forms in the past. Uh, and so it's, it was a very helpful reminder of that. It's, it's a great book. Uh, I, I read, I think, two of them, including the lessons where they concise every book uh, that they've written, you know, with uh, with a narrow uh, lens or, I mean, it's a great through line. What it is, it's a great through line. Uh, and it's, it's definitely a must read for anyone. I think if you have to read 10 or 20 books, I think their books have to be there at the top of the spectrum. Um, and with that, on uh, thanks for being on the show, honey. And you know, I hope we keep in touch and you know talk more about gaming and other things in the consumer area, and maybe have another conversation on the uh, on the podcast also. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me, 